Hi, everyone. This is Connor Gilsonen, and you're listening to the All Things Off podcast. On this show, I talk to creators, researchers, founders, and advocates who are moving the ball forward on usable security and privacy. We discuss how they got to where they are today and what they're currently working on. Who are they trying to help and what keeps them motivated to overcome challenges along the way? The goal, as always, is for the rest of us to learn from their experiences and go on to promote usable security and privacy within our own projects and organizations. In August 2019, I got the chance to interview 10 incredible researchers over two days at the Symposium on Usable Privacy and Security, also known as SOUPS. This is a two-part episode, and each episode contains a series of short conversations highlighting the research. I did my best to clean up the audio, but these interviews were recorded live at the conference, and some segments do have some background noise. Don't let that stop you from learning about the interesting studies conducted by these researchers. I hope you enjoy this new format, and don't forget to check out part one and part two of the episode. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm happy to be part of your podcast. My name is Yixin Zhou. I'm from University of Michigan. I'm a third-year PhD student starting from this fall. And so the title is an empirical analysis of data deletion and opt-out choices on 150 websites. So basically, we conduct an in-depth content analysis of privacy choices on this 150 websites. The focus is threefold on their presence, so how prevalent these website choices, privacy choices are. The description, so how are they described and presented by these websites and usability. So what are the potential usability issues when we as a researcher, we take ourselves as a testing user, we try to exercise these privacy choices and what we identify potential issues that might be hard, difficult for end users. So I feel the general conclusion we can reach is that even though these website privacy choices are prevalent, most websites offer something for privacy choices, more specifically on um, choices for data deletion and opt-outs for targeted advertising or email communications. Problems exist with regards to how these choices are described in privacy policy about the level of details websites provide about like what would happen after you exercise a choice, as well as um, the usability part. For example, it takes many, many actions to exercise one choice on the extreme end for some websites. So I think the end conclusion is that we advocate. It takes a joint effort between companies and regulators to improve the usability of the um, privacy choices. And when I say joint effort, I really emphasize the importance for regulators because one can speculate companies will deliberately make these choices hard to exercise because they will rely on pervasive data collection to either improve their product and services, which we hope they're doing, but on the other end, they may just try to profit more by harvesting user data. So what falls on the regulator's shoulder is to make sure they have enough you know, requirements stipulated in policy or fines, more like ad hoc, but still keep companies accountable whenever they use dark patterns.
And are there any particular examples that you shared in your presentation today or might be in the paper themselves that kind of highlight some of the specific things you looked at that were uh, working against the usability of these privacy mechanisms? So in the presentation, we played two videos of how it's so difficult for the user to use. One is to delete your data from New York Times. The other is to opt out of email communications from Amazon. And my intention is not to call out these two companies in particular, just to illustrate the big issue is that um, we shouldn't have privacy choices that require so many actions. For the New York Times, it requires up to 38 actions to delete one's data. And for Amazon, like one user, uh, once the user wants to um, go to the page to delete their, uh, to opt out of email communications, they will go through a list of 69 checkboxes before reaching to an opt out for all button at the very end. So a simple design choice that's improved is basically like move the position of the box to the top but uh, Amazon is not doing that. I don't know how many companies are out there that use the same pattern by like bury the um, opt-out for all button at the very end. I think we make the big argument is that companies need to invest efforts in not only whether the privacy choices are provided or not. And so I believe like based on our observation, these choices are very prevalent. So obviously they're doing it. They're offering the privacy choices, which is good. That means they comply with the um, mandated requirements from regulations. But once they overcome this, like we provide privacy choices stage, they should think more about whether these privacy choices are actually usable for especially non-tech savvy users who do not, if you tell end users, like if you want to opt out of targeted advertising, now the second popular practice for websites to do this is to explain how you can do that by adjusting cookie settings in browsers. But it's very, for me, I, I think it's, it's very hard for a common user with no technical background to actually follow the instructions. In many cases, it's actually vague and not that clear to do this. So an ideal situation is websites either provide their own targeted opt-out tool or they direct users to third-party um, self-regulation opt-outs for targeted advertising like DAA and NAI. They have their own targeted ads opt-out tools. So they should either point users to those tools or provide their own usable tools that actually work and require very few clicks. What are the next steps, do you think, for continuing this line of research? Are there any particular studies that you have in mind to follow up? For our team, we are actually running a user study at the moment, trying to understand after we identify this many issues, we try to like divide them into categories and we see whether certain types of patterns that we speculate would have impact on usability is actually something that causes problems for users. So we like invite people to come to our lab, we let them sit in front of the computer, we show them the website and the task that today we, we want you to um, opt out of email communications or targeted advertising using this provided account. Could you show us how you can do that? And then they will actually like try to finish the task. We do some like screen recording to observe how the path of implementation looks like. And we will, we also have some like 
intro interview and exit interview to ask about their overall experience with uh, using the privacy choices. And then what we hope to get as a big outcome is if issues and patterns we identified in this study are actually causing issues to users as we observe in the um, user study. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to share your research with us. Thank you for having me. I'm Carolina Busse. Uh, also, Caroline, it's fine. <laughs> I'm from Germany, from the University of Bonn at the Usable Security and Privacy Research Group of Matthew Smith. And I'm here at SIPS because I've presented a replication study of the paper No One Can Hack My Mind. It's a study about security practices and advice for expert and non-expert users. Thank you so much for doing a replication. I think it's so important that we do more of this to continue to validate findings over time and see how they might change. Can you talk a little bit to the study you replicated and how did you go about your research and what are some of the primary learnings and conclusions and potentially recommendations? Uh, the original study was presented at SOUPS 2015. It was by Julia Ayan, Rob Reeder, and Sonny Consolvo. It was a, um, a survey study based on expert interviews they conducted at Black Hat DEF CON and Usenix Security. And uh, from these interviews, they distilled a questionnaire about personal security practices, recommended practices, personal habits regarding online security. And um, the main part was rating advice, pre-formulated security advice targeted at non-expert users on how effective and how realistic it is. And uh, yeah, they found out that some topics greatly diverge between experts and non-experts. For example, non-experts have high confidence and um, regard antivirus software as very important, whereas the expert participants uh, were more focused on uh, password security, like password managers or uh, system and application updates. And the authors um, found that there emerged like four topics. It was passwords, it was updates, it was mindfulness and it was two-factor authentication, which feature a large gap between expert and non-expert perception. We've also found a slight methodology issue in the original study, um, because the authors um, asked to rate advice in terms of both effectiveness and realism, like how likely a user can follow it. And as you may have noticed, that's a compound question, and in general, compound questions are to be avoided when doing survey design. So what we did uh, was to set up an A-B testing when replicating this. So we asked half of our expert participants to take the original survey with the compound questions and the other half rated effectiveness and realism of the advice pieces separately. So we could identify, we could really identify advice where the, the practice was regarded as very efficient, effective at keeping the user secure, but not as very realistic that the user can follow it. By uh, looking at the differences in average rating, on effectiveness and realism, um, we found that, yeah, passwords, again, are an issue. Unique and strong passwords are considered effective, but not very realistic. Also, the adoption of password managers is seen as controversial. So there seems to be still some usability issues in adopting and using password managers for non-technical users. The adoption of two-factor authentication is also seen as very effective, but not realistic. This might be because 2FA is not widely available for any account. Also, because 2FA might be hard to set up and maintain for users, but we don't know from the survey design. That's a limitation of the replication. And uh, another thing was handling links and attachments, like not clicking on uh, attachments from unknown senders or not entering passwords after clicking on links and emails, which is also considered effective, but not very realistic. And I can see this 
because that's just how internet works. You sometimes get emails for password confirmation when you set up an account or stuff like that. And the last thing was application updates. While system updates have seemingly been resolved in the meantime, the original study was published in 2015. And we can confirm this by, for example, looking at Windows 10, which just does automatic updates. The user really can't deactivate anymore. Um, but system updates are still a problem because on, on desktop and on PC software, there is no such thing as centralized app stores, which handle all the updates. It sounds like a lot of the findings were confirming the findings in the original study. Is that the case? And if it is, do you have any conclusions or recommendations for the industry about how things have changed or stayed the same? Yeah, so overall, um, in the big picture, things have more likely stayed the same. There are some, uh, some security practices which were entered in free text fields um, that have disappeared, like deleting cookies regularly or using Linux as a security measure. But instead, we see other topics that have emerged, such as using ad blockers or script blockers, which might also take care of the cookie issue, um, or using a VPN. This was kind of interesting because uh, a lot of experts stated on using VPNs as a security measure, but none of them actually elaborated on why or what kind of VPN, because when using VPNs, there's always, yeah, there's always a trust issue involved. And um, most VPNs are simply used, from my gut feeling, um, to circumvent uh, content restrictions, like uh, <laughs> when, when using streaming services or stuff like that, media access. So I'm not sure how this relates to, um, to actual security advice. And this might be an interesting issue for, for the work, like maybe conduct a mental model study on VPNs as security measures. Thanks so much for taking the time to highlight your uh, replication study. Thank you again for sharing your fantastic research and uh, best of luck continuing this moving forward. Thank you very much. I'm happy and excited to appear on the podcast and thank you for having me and approaching me and also thanks for your work because usable security outreach is always good. <laughs>
but habituation is the term from neuropsychology, and it's been studied for over 100 years, and it's a very pervasive phenomenon. It's evident in all animal life. Just even the most basic life forms m exhibit this habituation behavior. One of the primary tools we've used is functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. And this is a very useful tool in neuroscience. It's, it's one of the, it is the gold standard for doing neuroimaging, where you can see deep inside the brain, different structures of the brain, what activities those are related to. So for example, if you break your arm or something, you could, you could get an MRI scan to see what's happening there. And you can also have MRI scans of your brain to see if there's an injury. But functional magnetic resonance, resonance imaging looks at what happens to the brain when people go through mental tasks. Like when people do um, calculations, when people are involved with memory tasks, when people look at fear stimuli, or when they're happy or when they're sad, what kind of reactions do you see in the brain? And it's amazing what fMRI can do. It can, it can correlate these psychological processes with regions of the brain. And what we've done is we've looked at visual processing centers of the brain to see how the brain habituates to warnings. So for example, habituation, it's, like I said, all animals exhibit this type of habituation. And the reason why is because it is advantageous for survival. If there's some stimulus in your environment that is less relevant, then why devote cognitive resources to it? Because it's better to conserve resources and to focus on other things. And that's why people, animals, all life, all animal life will habituate to stimuli. So uh, I don't know if, if your podcast can pick this up, but out in the hallway, there's some squeaky machine of some kind. Mm -hmm. And if you listen for it, you can hear it. But otherwise, you will just tune it out. Your brain will stop listening to that sound like it's not even there. Or if you come into a room that has wallpaper, you might initially like notice it and think, oh, that's unusual or that's interesting. But after a couple of visits to that room, it's as if you're not, you're not even seeing it. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting to us was how this can happen with warnings. One of our first studies, we used fMRI to look at how people habituate to a set of real-world warnings that we found. Browser warnings, uh, OS warnings, just all kinds of security-related warnings that, that we found. And we collected 40 of them, and we had people in an MRI machine look at these different warnings. And they'd have to classify them just to keep them engaged. Like, is this a, a warning or is this something else? And they would rate on something that looks like a game controller or something like that. They would respond because they're lying in these, these machines. They're kind of like a torpedo tube. I don't know if you've ever been in one, but you lay very still in a very narrow tube on your back and you can't really use a mouse, so you have to use this kind of joystick slash keypad. Anyways, they would respond to these, these warnings. And what was really interesting is that we saw after only two exposures to these warnings that they would habituate to them. And it's not like they were thinking, oh, this is boring, or I'm not going to look at this, I'm not going to pay attention to this warning anymore. It's just it was obligatory. The brain automatically devoted less and less attention to these notifications, to these warnings. And after, I don't know, three exposures to a warning, they were it was it kind of plateaued. It was dramatically less attention than what they had in the first place. This is really interesting considering it's from a, a, an actual 
observation of what's happening in the brain. And so really happening at that level, trying to understand it's not maybe that someone is tired or not paying attention, but they're actually just becoming so accustomed to seeing this that, like you're pointing out, the brain is just tuning it out and leaving those cognitive resources for something more interesting that might come along. Exactly. And in cognitive neuroscience, one of the tests to see if habituation is happening is to see if people are tired. If you can rule out fatigue, then you know that the reason why they're paying less attention is because of habituation and not because they're tired. And one of the ways you do that is you show a, a new stimulus that looks really different from everything else they've seen prior to that. And if their attention spikes or it returns to where it was before, then you know, oh, they're not tired. They're just, they've habituated to that one stimulus. You had talked about some of the images you were showing in your research and uh, showing a rubber duck as uh, something to, to jolt people out of this uh, normal flow of things. Yeah, so in this study, we looked at, because we already established in our past work how people habituate to warnings, but in this work, we were looking at something different, a different question, which is, well, what about notifications that people see all the time? There are, I think, many, many more notifications than there are security messages or privacy messages. And so the question is, if we are inundated with all of these notifications on our mobile devices, on maybe our Internet of Things devices or our computers, then can those can the frequent exposure to those notifications carry over to relatively rare security messages? And that was the point of this study. And in reference to what you talked about, this this rubber duck, or we call it a, a lure or, or a foil, is we see after habituation has happened, if we show this this novel foil if people will suddenly pay more attention to that and in our case they did and that meant that habituation was happening and they weren't they weren't just tired but the other the main finding of this of the study and its real purpose was to show that yes people can habituate to notifications and that can carry over to rare or relatively infrequent security messages so with reference to this podcast i mean with uh, authentication schemes, I think that has real application because apps like Duo, they could be really judicial about the number of, of notifications they show to people. But because they have a mobile app, that mobile app lives within an ecosystem of many other apps that also display notifications, which means that if you habituate to notifications on your phone, then that can have a detrimental effect that can impact how you respond to those important security messages. One particular example that comes to mind, thinking about this habitualization, is push notifications. You can receive these notifications when you're logging in, and you also perhaps have been so familiar with receiving this that your muscle memory just goes to click the approve button without looking at some of the potentially useful information they share about where's the login coming from. and while more secure than SMS two-factor, for example, it's still vulnerable to phishing attacks. It seems that your research would support the observation that users might not spend as much time looking at that detailed information and be prone to click accept pretty quickly. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I would be surprised if, if users scrutinize those notifications. If they are a regular user of that app and they get a notification that says, this device is logging in from this location. If it's, unless it's highly unusual, I think people won't even read it. I think the brain would register that yes, a notification was displayed, but 
unless you really focus, the person probably wouldn't even read the text because the brain, basically what happens, the brain says, I've seen this before and I'm going to draw on my memory of that image rather than to scrutinize it again. It's almost like a computer, how the computer can pull from memory rather than have to go to the disk again. It's just far more efficient. And that's a lot of what we see of our, a lot of our perception is actually what we remember rather than what we're actively seeing. Before we wrap up here, what are some of the exciting next steps that you're planning to look into in terms of setting this as a foundation? What do you see as some of the next steps? Some of the stuff we've done in the past, we've looked at ways to combat habituation. And one of the ways we found is that you can introduce novelty every time a message is displayed. And we found in our fMRI studies, and we found using eye tracking, and we also found through field studies we've done that if you change the appearance of the of the warning, either in color or in the way that it's, that it's displayed, maybe through animation, that it will maintain attention far better than a message that doesn't change its appearance. And we've, we've seen this in multiple methods, multiple exper experiments where people, they don't realize that they're paying more attention to these messages, but they just do. They just have to because the brain, that's how our brains work. And so they devote more more attention to novel things and we compare these two groups those groups that get a message that doesn't change versus one that does that after two weeks three weeks there's a dramatic difference between the two groups between paying attention so that's an interesting approach that could be used for security messages with reference to this paper i presented today at soups we're looking at how to change how to make security messages stand out from all the other notifications that they see and one of the things we looked at was changing the look and feel of a message or even changing the mode of interaction, changing what I call click to dismiss. So you might see a, a message and we're just so accustomed to mousing over to that dialogue and clicking OK or cancel. But if we can have a different mode of interaction like slide or drag or any number of other unusual or, I don't know, out of the box interaction mechanisms, I think that it makes a lot of sense because it kind of breaks the, the routine of responding to these messages. So that's something we're paying more attention to. We're going to study that in the future. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to share some of the highlights of your research. It's certainly fascinating and I'm excited to see where it goes next. Thank you. Thanks for your interest and thanks for talking with me. My name is Aaron Zhang. I'm a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, my research interests uh, are in machine learning and privacy. So basically, I try to use machine learning to help people make privacy decisions or to facilitate the making privacy decisions. Hi, I'm Sarah Pierman. I am a usable security and privacy researcher at Carnegie Mellon, and I'm also an incoming PhD student in societal computing at Carnegie Mellon. And my research interests, um, in this particular context at least, are helping people manage their passwords in secure ways and helping, more broadly, helping people actually achieve their stated security and privacy goals. So there are a lot of mismatches between people, what people say they would like to do and what they actually uh, are able to do. And we kind of want to help them bridge that gap. We essentially conducted 30 interviews to try to understand both why people don't use password managers because the adoption rate is pretty low 
and also among people who do use some kind of password management tool why a lot of them don't use those tools effectively so not using them effectively can mean things like not generating random passwords so using a tool to save passwords but just saving really weak passwords and reused passwords meaning the tool might be convenient but it gives you no security benefit or in the case of especially a lot of separately installed password management applications to use them effectively you need a a good master password and a lot of people have trouble with that so we wanted to examine some of the things that are keeping people from handling their passwords securely there's been other work that's looked at password manager adoption Um, In our case, we specifically made a point of distinguishing between, of course, people who don't use any kind of password management tool maybe are just writing their passwords down or saving them in a Microsoft Word file or something, and people who use some kind of built-in password management tool, like in a browser or like the keychain functionality in Apple products, and people who are using some kind of separately installed tool, so that would be products that you have to install as a separate application or browser extension. So that's things like LastPass, Dashlane, 1Password, KeePass, and other things like that. And we think it's really important to distinguish between those built-in tools and the separately installed tools because people's motivations for using them are different and their outcomes are usually different too. I think for the group who are not using any tools, they're the ones that are Um, they usually don't know that password management tools existed. They are usually the ones that use a variety of different ways to manage their passwords because they don't have a centralized way to do it. So usually they would um, do a few, you know, write it on post-it notes or they would save in the browser a few of their passwords. So they would do like a, a few different things. For them, I think the most way is to increase awareness and try to advocate useful features of password managers to them. So for example, they would found them without their password, like without their notes next to their computer if they try to log in somewhere else. And a password manager that can sync passwords can be really useful for them. And also some people really like things organized. They want their password in one place. And for those people, password managers apparently is a very good option. And for the other group where they're mostly using, mostly saving their passwords in browsers or their um, phones or using Keychain to store their passwords, they're mostly doing it because it's easy. They would love to just click to be able to log in without typing in their passwords. And for those people, the prompts worked really well. Many of them mentioned they adopt using those tools because of the prompts they received. So we think the next step would be to use uh, the prompt to let them generate passwords. But to be able to let them use the randomly generated passwords, they need to be able to trust the tools that they're using. A lot of people are having problems because they don't trust the tool 100%. There's various reasons, like what we mentioned in the presentation, is the confusing prompts. On the website, there's a remember me option. And they would think that's from the browser. So if they, by clicking on that, they would be able to save their passwords. But when they found out their passwords were not saved when they're trying to log in the second time, they think, oh, this tool is not working as expected. 
so they would not try to use that to save passwords later. Another thing with the separately installed group, we had five people who are technical, who with a technical background, and two that do not have a technical background. So the two people who do not have a technical background were the ones that are mostly using less optimal behaviors, like they are not using a safe um, master password. So one actually stored her master password in the email draft, and the other was using one of her high, highly reused old password as her master password. I think the non-technical users of separate install tools would really need to be educated more about the importance of master passwords and ways to help them to manage or to remember and store their master passwords. Yeah, I think it really highlights, you know, we don't we don't have quantitative data, but from the qualitative data we have, I think that separately installed tools work pretty well for people with enough technical expertise to get past some of the UI friction that they create and to understand how to do things like create and store a master password. I think that's more intuitive for people who already know a little bit about passwords and how passwords are cracked. But for people who don't have that kind of expertise, I think that a lot of these tools don't have quite enough information about here's what a master password is, here's exactly what it does, here are ways, you know, if you can't remember it yourself without writing it down or saving it somewhere, here are pretty safe ways to save it, and here are ways that you should not save it. And I think that there's just not quite enough help to make this intuitive for non-expert users. It's really important to conduct a lot of user testing and make sure that in that user testing you have non-expert users who don't have any technical knowledge. And one thing we think is especially important here, you know, a lot of user testing just because of resources might be you bring people in for a day, for an hour, and have them use something, or even you do it remotely and you have them use something for a little while, but rarely are you testing having someone really adopt something fully. So I hope that some of these companies will not only have people test these things for a little while, but see, like, can someone take all of their existing passwords, whether they have dozens, possibly hundreds, which is not that unusual these days, and transition them all into the tool successfully, generate new passwords if that's required, and make sure that the tool retrieves passwords reliably on all of those websites. You know, right now, maybe it does on 75% of them or more. I don't, you know, I don't have numbers for that, but most of them are going to have trouble with certain websites that are built in certain ways, and that really erodes people's trust of these tools, and it makes them feel like they're unreliable and they don't behave in predictable ways, and so then they don't want to use them, or if they use them, they want to have some kind of backup that a lot of times isn't as secure. So these tools just have to be really consistent and really reliable for people to use them properly. Really interesting insights. It was great chatting with both of you. Thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your research. Sure. Thank you. My name is Kyle Crichton. I am a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, affiliated with Scilab there. Um, I work under Dr. Lori Craner and Dr. Nicholas Kristen.
My most recent research has been in incentives being offered uh, people to enable two-factor authentication. The specific project we've worked on is, or at least we were motivated to try to tackle, was, was doing a, a, a study that looked at an incentive out there in the real world. Um, there's been a lot of research conducted with, uh, in a laboratory setting that sometimes is more contrived. There's, there, there's more concerns that there's some bias involved. We wanted to see what we could find out there in the real world. One of the examples that came to mind was uh, the popular game Fortnite. They began offering an incentive about a year, year and a half ago to their players, essentially giving them free in-game content if they enabled two-factor authentication for their accounts. Uh, so one, we thought that was really cool and was an example of an, a big organization not forcing their users to adopt 2FA, but instead giving them a little nudge uh, in order to do so. And we want to understand how effective this was. Was it effective for different kinds of users? And what were some of the ramifications that came out of it? So it'd be fascinating if you were working at Fortnite because you would have access to all of this information directly. From the outside, we were able to recruit about 200 Fortnite players to get a sense of whether they were aware of the incentive, whether that had any effect on their decision to adopt 2FA or not. And using that information, we, we then tried to sort of make these outside uh, evaluations. One of the challenges we had was that we couldn't randomize who had seen the incentive and who did not. And what we really wanted to come away with was some sort of uh, statement on causality, right? Did the incentive cause people to adopt 2FA or not? So we worked around this by using an IV model, um, instrumented variables, uh, based on the console that the players were playing on. We thought that that was a semi-randomly assigned parameter, independent of whether they would have adopted 2FA or not but we thought that it impacted uh, the likelihood of them seeing the incentive that was primarily conveyed to them through the loading screens. And computers would load much faster than consoles, which would load much faster than, say, mobile devices. So using that model, we unfortunately did not find a significant uh, effect for the incentive being offered. But one of the interesting things that we did find was that there was a social effect um, that played a very important role in players' decisions of whether to adopt 2FA or not. Users that had a friend who had previously adopted 2FA on, uh, for Fortnite were six and a half times more likely to have adopted it themselves. And not only that, they were about six times more likely as well to have just known about the incentive that was being offered. Uh, so this sort of correlation between all of these factors uh, led us to believe that there was some masking of the true effect of the incentive. So one of the things that we, we hypothesized was that, you know, uh, if you had a friend that had already enabled 2FA for Fortnite, they might come to you and on the one hand say, hey, I just adop adopted 2FA, it's great, you know, it really helps with security, it's not that hard to set up, you should do it. On the other hand, we think more likely is that they came to their friends and said, hey, I just adopted 2FA, I got some cool stuff, you know, for free, you should check it out. And we think that factor would have played a, a role in masking the effect of the incentive. And if we had a bit more information on to which of those two factors uh, was actually motivating the user, uh, we would be able to sort of draw that conclusion concretely. 
without having complete information uh, and data, and uh, you're talking about questions you'd be able to answer more clearly with uh, full insight into the experiment being run by Fortnite. Can you make some general conclusions and would you recommend that other companies, certainly in gaming, but more generally, should follow this general approach for generally it was a successful experiment? We can't conclude necessarily that the incentive had a positive effect. We know it definitely did not do anything negative. We did find that users uh, who were kind of on the edge or on the, uh, the margin of whether or not they were deciding between uh, enabling or not, the incentive did have an effect. And so even that in and of itself, if that was the only effect, that's still a, ben a benefit. We also found, conversely to some of our hypotheses, that players who actually spent more money on the game were also more likely to be incentivized, which was surprising to us. We thought that people that already had a lot of content wouldn't you know, bite for the extra free content, but they did. And I think that was a promising sign, because uh, those are really the high value targets, the, the players and the accounts that you would want to protect. That's a really interesting observation, and what pops into my mind is Perhaps they weren't incentivized by getting free content, but the sheer magnitude and popularity of this campaign made them aware and they learned throughout the campaign somehow of two-factor existing. Perhaps they weren't aware before and they looked at all of the content in-game and the success they'd built up and thought perhaps it was a way to better protect themselves. That could absolutely be the case. With Fortnite and the, the free content, the, the emotes and the, the dance moves, they have a large social uh, component to them. And so you know, a player might see someone else do the this dance move, the boogie down dance move emote, and be like, that's really cool, how do I get it? And then by searching it or, or seeing a message about it, they might you know, just raise awareness. So they might not have been immediately intrigued by, oh, there's a free content, but they might have seen it or it might have yeah, sparked some um, more awareness, which is a success in and of itself. Kyle, thanks so much for taking time to share the research. Uh, are there any closing thoughts or next steps that you can think for looking into this more deeply? Absolutely. So in addition to the component that we had talked about of, of wanting to look at uh, this, this sort of social effect in more detail, we, we want to look at more broadly across other games or other accounts, online accounts outside of the gaming community. What other incentives are being offered, what other incentives could be offered, and see in comparison, you know, what, how people respond differently, right? Do people respond differently to different types of incentives, to different types of accounts that they're protecting? Um, I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity out there. Don't forget, this episode contains two parts. If you enjoyed these conversations, I guarantee you'll enjoy the interviews with researchers in the second part as well. You can find the show notes for today's episode by heading to allthingsoff.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you'd like to support the show, I would really appreciate a rating or a review in iTunes. I personally read all of the reviews over there, and they really help others to discover the show. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next new episode in two weeks.